Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a Kingkiller Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, episode 36. We are stardust, we are golden, we are caught in a devil's bargain, and we've got to get ourselves back to the garden, where we will be looking at chapter 71 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of bargaining. I am in awe of your naming prowess. Um, <laughs> I'm not so sure that all of the, uh, the services that we use <laughs> for distributing this podcast will be very happy with that rather long title. What I want to remind you of is that Podbean says, choose a name that is succinct. Well, Podbean can tell that to Mr. Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Sure. Let's get on with it. I'm sure that all of our regular listeners are well aware of what I'm about to say. But... gonna say it anyway. It's good form. Okay, let's get this whole party started with a disclaimer and an explanation, and I'm gonna try to read this really fast for you. If you are new to the podcast, each week we will be examining a section of the book The Name of the Wind through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian for Nemos of the Week, after which we will expand our understanding of our own world with an interesting fact. Finally, we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from our own lives. Was that fast enough? Yes, I think so. So before we begin, let's always get the usual disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we're in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, though, as always, we remain open to that. Second of all, our discussions naturally assume that either A, you've already read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as the other ancillary novellas and short stories in the continuity, or B, you don't mind knowing how you die. Needless to say, beyond this point, spoilers get. Spoilers get? I just wanted to say it that way. It's fun. Okay. Finally, as a word to our community, while it's perfectly fine to critique the text as you read it, we will not stand for any abuse of the author responsible. And now, speaking of fast things, we're going to be doing a 45-second recap, and it's my turn, complete with rhyming couplets. How well did you do on your rhyming couplets today? Well, they rhyme. Not well, but they rhyme. My apologies to the torture that I have placed upon the English language. You're apologizing to the English language this boats well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, let me go ahead and get you your timer ready. Alrighty. In three... Two, one, go. Kvoth goes to the stable to procure a horse. He finds one quite able, but the beast is expensive, of course. While calming the steed with a quiet, gentle patter, he gives its nature heed and finds the truth of the matter. The trader relents and gives Kvoth quite the deal, and the lad takes flight with money spent on both the mount and its meal. Through road, river, and rock, Kvoth and Ketzel and speed, revealing the beast's one sock, which affects not its breed. As the two are about pooped, they encounter a tinker, so Quoth closes the loop on his one-way horse linker. The tinker reveals that Quoth's near his destination, and so the lad keeps it real and trades his goods for his transportation. When he finally arrives in the town's local inna, what should fate contrive but an encounter with Denna? Okay. I was hoping. 
so hoping, so hoping for cherries. And yet? I mean, we have cherries in the refrigerator right now because you've been kind and gotten me fruit for my snacks. And I love that. And, and it was just, it, it was so close. It was so there. You almost tripped over the ending. And yet. And yet. 43.25. Yes. Nailed it. You win this round. I'll take my victories where I can find them. But in all seriousness, congratulations. That was really awesome. <laughs> I'm glad you liked it. And yeah, there was a lot to cover in this chapter. It's a dense one. It's also very long, which is different from all of the other dense chapters that we've had lately. So let's dive in, shall we? Aye. So we chose bargaining because Quoth goes through a number of bargaining steps throughout this chapter. And it seems like every interaction he's in here is a negotiation trying to find a way to get what he wants. What's funny, though, is that he never loses. Well, he's also an unreliable narrator, so... True. I mean, there was a Twitter poll from one of our fellow fantasy novel enthusiasts recently that was doing a bracket for the best hero in a fantasy novel or some such. And Quoth won against Harry Potter, yay, defeating the Turfs. Sorry, Harry, you were not the chosen one this time. But he did lose against Randall Thor. Is that right? Yeah, he lost to Rand from Will. Yeah, Althor, Rand Althor. Everyone just was like, yeah, Quoth is great. But Rand wins. That's because there's a lot of Wheel of Time stands out there. There's a lot of Wheel of Time podcasts out there. Yeah. And we love all of them. I love them more than I love the Wheel of Time. I have a complicated relationship with it. <laughs> Correction, we love all the ones that follow us and we follow. How's that? Yeah. But as we said there, we can't really fault them for choosing Rand over Quoth. And that's because Kvothe is an unreliable narrator. I also think there is a distinction between Kvothe, as he actually is, and Kvothe, who is the hero of the story he tells. I am 100% on board with that. And I think, ultimately, the final reveal in Doors of Stone is that Kvothe, the actual person, doesn't amount to much at all, and has greatly inflated his overall importance to the scheme of things. It's an interesting theory. You know that we're about to record our Backcountry bonus podcast for this upcoming Equinox pretty soon, right? Yep. Stay tuned to see some of my other crazy theories. Are you eliciting any suggestions from our audience on Twitter or anywhere else? Absolutely. If you have any crazy theories you want me to discuss, you can DM me on Twitter at Tepish. That's T-E-P-P-E-S-H. I'm not going to make the joke like I'm 12. I'm not going to make the joke like I'm 12. I'm not going to make the joke like I'm 12. Look, I named myself after my Warcraft character, which was itself named after Vlad the Impaler. So what are you going to do? That's not the joke. Anyway, let's go on. Yep, moving on. Somehow we got on a tangent about whether or not Quoth is heroic, and I have lost 
all the threads of what we were talking about before that. So let's start with his first bargain here, which is with the horse trader. I really like this chapter a lot. Foth is at his best when he is boasting about his abilities that he learned because he spent his formative years as an Adimaru. I don't know. To me, self-aggrandizing Kvothe is pretty much the best Kvothe. I mean, it's a low bar. It's also the worst Kvothe. Yeah, which makes him the best to talk about. Yes. <laughs> so here we get him trying to both bargain with and at the same time threaten the horse trader. You have ten minutes to make this deal or I'm leaving. Oh, dear God. I mean, like... You get the sense that buying a horse in Temerant is similar to buying a car in real life, where there's usually a whole lot of back and forth where the salesperson says, I have to go run it by the manager, and then they go back to the back and just kind of have a smoke break and then come back and say, oh, the manager says, no, we're going to come back with this. In our experience of buying a car, when we're like, hey, we want this car, guess what car was in the showroom? When we arrived, the next model up. Oh yeah, of course, they're obviously always going to try and upsell you. There's always going to be sort of that back and forth. The business of buying a car takes hours, even if you know exactly what you want. Right. It's like, I want that one. And they're like, goody, go take it for a test drive. Six hours later... When would you like to sign your paperwork for this car to officially become yours? Oh yeah, now we have to do all of the loan servicing. Now we have to do all of the stuff that we need to do. And then we need to detail. We need to do. And we... <sighs> it can be exasperating. And Quoth here makes the baller move of coming in with just hard currency up front. So that theoretically makes it easier. But... It's also not the rhythm that the trader is used to. Man, next time we buy a... <laughs> I was about to say buy a horse. Yeah. <laughs> the next time we buy a car, I want to save for the damn car and lay the money down on the forking table and just say, I want that car. Here's the money. Me leave now. Yeah, there'd still be all the paperwork of titles and crap like that. Yeah... So Kvothe approaches the horse trader with, I'm in a hurry, I want to do this now, da 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 That in itself is kind of a bargaining chip. But the horse trader is trying to still hold on to his power. I mean, you can't blame the guy, but at the same time, if somebody's willing to just give you money, maybe you should just take the money. And yay for Kvothe for knowing what he's looking for, according to him. <laughs> and he walks in and sizes up all of the horses, notices that most of them are hacks or what have you. And then he gets presented with this all black, that will be important, Kershayan fourth horse. 18 hands. This section kind of speaks to my heart a little bit. Because when I was little, my dad read all of the Black Stallion books to me. And I loved horses theoretically i was scared out of my mind about actual horses but the poetry and the imagination and everything that those books sparked in me oh that just ah i loved that it was just such a special place 
in my heart. So reading about how Quoth is being gentle, letting the horse snuffle his hand, letting the horse be more comfortable, having this easy patter, it's just it's kind of warm feeling that I get. And not in the way of, oh my god, it's going to be 103 today. One thing I noticed here is when he's in this gentle patter mode, he's turning off his conscious mind, his waking mind, as Elodin would put it. Kind of the way that he did with the turning leaf and the sword tree at the end of The Wise Man's Fear. Exactly. And it's here that he arrives at the true name of this horse. Of course, it's not necessarily the name he thinks it is. <laughs> He's sitting here saying, uh, some stupid lord would probably call it Midnight or some shirt. I'm going to call it Twilight. It's not much better. But it's Twilight in another language, which makes it oh so much more cultured. Again, not much better. This is the equivalent of the kid who gets the kanji tattoo and thinks it means one thing, but it really means something completely different. I mean, at least in this case, it's kind of endearing and innocuous. But it also points to the perils of choosing a name off of something you don't completely understand. Nonetheless, it turns out he's right. I think that Quoth is an inherent namer, and I believe that I actually referenced this section of the book a while back, talking about how I believe that Quoth is an inherent namer, like he's just right. So in that same vein, he very easily could have accurately named Ari. He calls her his little moon fae. He did accurately name Ketsalen, which does not in fact mean twilight. It means in fact one sock, which I find so endearing and I love because I have a thing for socks. And we sometimes call our little sock kitty socks. And in fact, we love this horse so much that that's actually what you named your guitar after. Yep. Around the time this drops, we'll include pictures of Ketsalen, the guitar, on our Patreon page. For anyone that would like to look at this guitar that Will says is an absolute shredder and does not suit the style of music that I typically or ever play. But it's mine anyway, and I love it. Look, it's an Ibanez RGA. That's a shredder's guitar right there. <laughs> but it's pretty and comfortable. Which does not negate the shredding part. Shredding is both pretty and comfortable. I'm never going to shred on that guitar. I know. It makes you so sad. I know. It does. <laughs> For those of you wondering where our Patreon can be found, patreon.com slash waystonepod. It will be up for free for everybody. I'm not going to put it behind a paywall or anything. So anyway, after revealing what he thinks is a name that means Twilight which would be Ket Salem, the horse trader gets a little nervous that Kvoth is on to him and hastily agrees to a significant reduction in price, which works out for Kvoth. It's the equivalent of getting something B-stock that has damage you don't really care about. There's nothing inherently wrong with Ket Salem. He just isn't completely black. And he certainly runs just fine, as Kvoth is about to figure out. And this actually brings me to a bargain that I noticed. Kvoth is in bargaining mode right now, and that means that everything he thinks about is in terms of bargains, where he says, 
I would have killed a dozen horses if it would have helped me get more information about the Chandrian and why they killed my parents. Which means he's thinking of everything transactionally. He's thinking about what he has to trade, whether that's time or distance or, as it works out, horses. More correctly, the life of a horse. Right. All of this is in an effort to find out more about the Chandrian, which is, of course, the burning secret need that he's been experiencing pretty much ever since his parents were killed. Now, granted, he decides that it's not worth completely running Ketsalan into the ground, so he lets him get up ahead of steam first before going to full gallop. But it is illustrative of how he's thinking about everything. He's already traded just about everything he's got just for the loan from Davy. So he's in that bargaining mode. Everything has to be transactional. I want to get there quicker, but in order to get there quicker, I have to do it smarter. Yep. To be fair, he's wise in this regard. Sometimes you've got to let things warm up a little bit before you take it out to full gallop. The description of his flight off to Traven. I really like it. It's full of detail, but it feels like that call to adventure. It feels like there's something so different about this section of the book, this chapter of the book, than we have had for the last few hundred pages. And it kind of takes it from that everything's the same and this transition is just so beautiful. I think part of it is we see the book finally shifting into gear here. Much like Keth Salen, he spent the first part of the book kind of walking and then cantering. And he cantered for quite a while just to kind of get into the groove. And now they're at that full gallop where he has covered close to 70 miles over the course of a single day. When before that, that would have taken weeks. I'd like to also point out something. You missed trotting. Trotting is uncomfortable. Trotting is Tarbian. Yes. <laughs> That's exactly it. Now we're finally at that full gallop where things are moving at pace, where threads are coming together, and we're finally moving towards our destination. One thing I would like to point out, though, about Patrick Rothfuss's writing, he fulfills the promise of a detail quickly. I crossed a stream full of solvents three times. One sock. Also, I find it notable that it was three times that they crossed the stream as it wound around through switchbacks and things like that. I thought that was a nice little bit of storytelling there. Those three times reveal the truth of Keth Salen, which turns out it was purely cosmetic because the horse ran pretty good. <laughs> this section is slightly mystical, and I think that that is aided by the addition of the Tinker. The Tinker serves to be our little bit of a chance to catch our breath and see just how far we've come. When Kvoth finally meets up with the Tinker, he can tell that Kethsalen doesn't have a whole lot left in him, because he has ran hard and far and fast. And I imagine at this point, Kvoth is probably also feeling pretty gassed. Yeah, have you ridden a horse 
I don't think so, no. Ever? No. Not even on a beach? No. Not even like a trail ride? No. Wow. Huh. I have. On a beach and on a trail ride. Even when they're going slow, when they're walking, if you are not used to it. I mean, when was the last time you rode a bike? It's been a couple years now. <laughs> I know. Do you remember how you felt the first couple of times out of the gate on your bike? Yeah. I was feeling pretty saddle sore. Yeah. So now imagine that is a living animal that is unpredictable, that jostles and bounces you around, and is also pretty wide. I gotta figure that Kvothe's been getting a workout in muscles he hasn't had any occasion to work out. Yeah, in a long time. He's probably feeling it. I mean, just the shock to his skeletal system from those hard gallops. You gotta figure that. Gallops are actually okay. They're kind of smooth. Trotting, as was stated in the book, trotting, uh, it's just up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down and up and down <laughs> and not pleasurable. That'd be pretty jarring. It's essentially the saddle hitting your butt. Let's say butt. It's not your butt, but... <laughs> your tailbone. No, it's not even that. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> yeah, let's put it this way. Your pelvic region is having some issues. And I think that's all we have to say at this point, because I think we've spent more time on this <laughs> than is uh, strictly warranted. I would like to not think about Kvothe's pelvic region anymore. Thank you. You're welcome. Okay. So now we enter the third round of bargaining. First, our bargain was the horse trader. Second was the bargaining with Ketzalan. And now we're bargaining with the Tinker. Now, of course, as we remember, one always has to be kind to Tinkers because this is a bit of folk morality that everyone ascribes to, which... Again, I maintain the Tinkers have done a really good job of burnishing their reputations. They have a great PR department. Seriously. And this is sort of a different feel from the bargain with the horse trader. This one has kind of an easy, pleasant feel to it. I think part of it is because Kvothe is, for the first time in a while, kind of getting back to his traveling roots. And... In so doing, when he encounters the Tinker, they're both kind of wanderers at this point, and they're both able to speak on that level. I like the little easy exchange of, you're not a bad liar, but you need to know when to stop. If the bait's too big, the fish won't bite. Which I think kind of sums up Coates' philosophy in his telling of the story to Chronicler. You get them to swallow those little half-truths first and then work your way up to the big lie that both the person actually matters in the grand scheme of things. Anyway, that's for our Equinox pod. And then Kvothe is performatively horrified and name-drops the Edimaru, which I'm still not 100% certain that all of the Rue are actually good folk. My guess is that just as with any folk, there are good ones and bad ones. 
there's no universal that you can apply to, you know, a, a nation or a group of people. However, I do imagine that tinkers would be more likely to have favorable interactions with the Rue just by virtue of being folk who don't have a set home. I do note that this particular tinker has two donkeys. Who else had two donkeys? That would have been our good friend, Ben, Abenthi. So I think that that's another way in which this tinker has kind of automatically endeared himself to Kvoth. Yeah, definitely an echo of Ben. This is where we get our revelation that One Sock is an apt name. Kvoth kind of does a face palm and goes, oh my god, we walked through solvents. And he says, that shim bastard. And I'm like, is shim a racial epithet? I think it kind of is. Which is icky. It really is. It carries certain... Ugh. 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 Yeah. It's something that seems to only be applied to people of Shaldish descent and is associated with parsimony and unfair dealings. Yeah. I... <laughs> Never mind the fact that Kvoth got a good deal on a horse who has carried him way farther than he had any right to hope for. And way faster, too. Because keep in mind, it's only been a few hours since he's left Emre. Yeah, he says it's about an hour afternoon. That was way better time than he had expected. Or had any right to expect. We also find that Kvoth gets that, oh, of course that's why the course was so much cheaper than I thought it would be. That guy thought I knew his secret. At the same time, he kind of did, because his unconscious mind, I think, did recognize the true nature of Quetzalan, that he really was a one-socket creature. And at the end of the day, this is like discovering that that super great deal you got on the Ferrari was because there was a little ding that the salesperson had put nail polish over. I mean, my other guitar, my Yamaha acoustic, is named Kvoth, and... I got a good deal on it because when somebody at the shop changed its strings, they accidentally put a notch in the headstock that almost no one can see and is not structurally damaging. And I got like 80 bucks off of this thing. And I love that guitar. Well, and it just goes to show you that there are a lot of things that supposedly reduce the value in the eyes of certain people that don't do anything to detract from their value to people who actually need those things. Moving on, down to the actual bargaining between Kvoth and the Tinker. So Kvoth knows that he can't afford to keep Salen as much as he values and admires this horse. It kind of reminds me of when I got paid, paid, for some work for a startup company that did both printing and dog breeding, and I got paid with a puppy. You got paid with a money sink. <laughs> I did, and I had to give that poor little puppy back, and I loved him so much. But you know, I didn't have any money. And when you don't have any money, and you can't even feed yourself, it's really hard to feed a dog. Yeah, especially a puppy who in addition to needing food also needs to have veterinarian appointments which are not cheap and a lot of attention which is how he wound up trying to eat my cell phone all of that adds up real quick and 
Cost of ownership is something I think a lot of people forget about. Quoth, of course, being almost pathologically obsessed with the current standings of his ledger, is well aware of the cost of ownership, and so he's happy to trade away Ketsalen, who probably has about 10 more miles on him today before he'll be needing a rest. Yeah, Ketsalen is in need of an extended rest. But he's still got enough in him to take the Tinker's stuff as far as the nearest ferry. As such, the Tinker's willing to take that deal, because, hey, he'll give Quoth pretty much anything he decides he needs. And at the same time, I get the sense that the Tinker's also trying to get rid of some of his own inventory as well. Hey, here's this heavy thing that I have that's kind of a novelty. Would you like it? <laughs> and they call it a Loden Stone. And then Tinker's like, well, technically it's not a Loden Stone, it's a Traben Stone. Which makes me think of, well, technically it's not champagne. <laughs> if it's not grown in Champagne, it's just sparkling white wine. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Definitely has that feel to it. He's also asking if he wants multiple bottles of liquor and wine, all of which are heavy things. It's like when you're playing Skyrim and suddenly you realize that you're out of inventory space because you've been picking up every single thing and then you find the nearest merchant and you try and figure out what you can offload. You are encumbered and now you have to walk very, very excruciatingly slowly. I hate that feeling. And I get the feeling the Tinker does too. Note about Skyrim. This is why, and literally the only reason why, I cheat. This is why I put in dev codes. Because 300 pounds in Skyrim is nothing. Especially with armor and weapons and however many other miscellaneous things you might have picked up. And anything that you may or may not want to craft with. Right. Dragon bones. <laughs> How many of these can I use? And how many of them do I need to get rid of? I don't like playing inventory management the game. That's just not me, so... Cheats? Or you find someone handy who you can trade with. Or you just have a follower along that has larger inventory space than you do. Or you keep sticking all of the stuff you want to save into all of the treasure chests nearby, and then you forget where everything that you wanted was. <sighs> Let us know if you also have this particular experience with Skyrim. The struggle is real. Anyway. Naturally, the Tinker is a little put out when Quoth denies some of the trading requests. Because, hey, he wants to get rid of inventory too. And it's actually kind of a secret that in retail, inventory represents assets that you can't spend and so anything you can do to get rid of some of that inventory especially stuff that's hard to get rid of ends up being beneficial in the long haul finally they arrive on a deal Kvothe also gets an extra shirt since he seems to go through them a lot faster than he'd like and he takes the bottle of brand which he believes will help disinfect his stitches if he needs to so what he got is blanket shirt brand and three jots he didn't go for the rope no. No. This is literally it. I think the rope was a little bit of a callback to Lord of the Rings because everyone knows, according to the Gospel of Samwise, that you need to have a little bit of rope. You never know when you'll need it. <laughs> I think that the lack of rope and the lack of fruit wine is 
ultimately going to bite him later on in the chapters of Traven. I distinctly remember him wishing that he had kept the fruit wine so that he could have a nice little date with Denna. <sighs> <sighs> well, I don't blame him for that. Not really, but I mean, this might not be the time. Probably not. And then I think also the lack of rope is going to vex him as well. This is why you should just say yes to whatever the tinker says you need. Especially rope. You're always going to need rope. You don't know why, but there will come a time and you'll be glad that you have it. The Tinker is talking about years of experience traveling the road, and I am sure that rope has probably come quite in handy. Kvothe would do well to heed that advice. Kvothe, of all the people, do you really think that Kvothe is going to heed anyone's advice? No. That's why he's not our Fernemos. Ever. Ever. You could make an argument this time around that he does at least seem to know what he's doing with the horse. But he's still not Arphronimos. I don't care. At this time, though, Foth and the Tinker part ways. Foth is kind of afraid that he's offended the Tinker a little bit. So he offers to help load up Ketsalen and get everything ready and prepared so that the Tinker can go on his merry way. Tinker goes east. Foth goes to Traben, where he talks about how to size up a town. It was off the beaten path. It was halfway between a mining town and a farming town. They weren't likely to be instantly suspicious of strangers, but it was a small enough town that everyone knew by looking at you that you weren't one of the locals. And now you get to know why I asked you how to spell Missoula. One of the people I follow online and read his books and whatnot is Hank Green. And he sometimes talks about how Missoula, the town that he lives in, is pretty tiny. It's a college town. But I get the impression that it's not like a one-horse town. It's a town where, yeah, you'd probably notice if somebody showed up that wasn't from around these parts. Which, in turn, is also a little like Night Vale. And Kvothe is an interloper. 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 Point stare. Interloper. Anyway. Do yourself a favor, listen to Welcome to Nightville if you do not already. It's a small one-horse town, maybe two-horse, <laughs> and definitely not exactly a bustling hubbub. He notices a couple things on his way in. First of all, people are putting out shamblemen in the fields, which kind of is a Halloweenish harvest festival-type ritual. Which means they're a little more superstitious than normal. And he also notices that their church is pretty big. And happens to include a pretty big iron wheel. The largest that he'd ever seen. And it was made out of real iron. He speculates that this may not be especially related to piety so much as the fact that it's a mining town. And there's a lot of iron to be had. And there's some civic pride. Which is all well and good. You use what's kind of the local flavor. But it does mean that people here definitely have an eye towards supernatural explanations of things. Which will play a part in his interactions with the local town folk. So anyway, he makes towards the local inn 
and does his best to ask around without really asking around. A.K.A. Bullshirt. And he gets referred to someone who survived the wedding massacre, and hey, maybe it's his, quote, cousin. And who should it be? Let's say it on one, two, three. Dana. Dana. Because of course it is. Because remember, Quoth thinks that their love story is star-crossed and important. Though she does say that it takes a special sort of man to show up when he doesn't know that there's trouble. Yep. I'd also like to note that in true Quoth and Dinah fashion, the first one, two, three, four things that Quoth says to Dena all consist of seven-word sentences. He's got a bad... And with that, I think it's time for us to talk about our Fernemos. I agree. It's your turn this week, so why don't you tell me who you picked? Well, let's think about this for a second or two. We have the horse trader. We have Kvoth. We have Ketsalan. I really could choose Ketsalan because he was smart enough not to drink solvents, which I'd say is maybe possibly still wiser than Kvoth. But nah. We've got the Tinker. The innkeeper and Denna. Who do you think I'm going to pick? Well, let's run down things here. So the horse trader kind of is trying to pull a fast one and ends up losing a little bit of money on the deal and not getting as much as he'd hoped for Ketsalen. So I don't think that's Ark for Nemos. Two, it's never Kvoth. Three, Ketsalen's a horse and a horse is a horse, of course, of course, and he can't talk. So it's not going to be him. It's definitely not the innkeeper, because the innkeeper's kind of superstitious and a little gruff, and doesn't really have a whole lot there except just to be pointing the way. And Dana also doesn't really do much in this chapter either, so it can't be her. So obviously that leaves the tinker. You are correct, sir. You really should just trust the tinker. His wisdom doesn't necessarily shine through as well when you look at this chapter in isolation. But I do believe that as you go on in this section, the Town of Traben section, which by the way, if anyone would like to give us some suggestions for lenses to look at the Town of Traben through, we are active on Twitter, at WaystonePod. Let us know what you think. Anyway, now that that shameless plug is out of the way again, but I think that there is something to be said about the wise old man that you meet on the road. And I think that there is something to learn from the fact that while Quoth intellectually knows that he should trust the Tinker, he still thinks that he knows better for his own circumstances and says, no, 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 I'd rather continue to dicker. It speaks to the Tinker's character that while his face soured a little bit, he didn't fight. He might very well know what is better for Quoth, either actually know, like being precognizant, or just mystically, this seems right. But he also knows not to fight with his customer. Yeah, the customer is not always right. No. I mean, I've worked for floral nurseries where people have brought me back a plant that is super dead in a garbage bag full of dirt and that we had to have an expert identify so that we could give the customer back $30. That's not right. 
that's you don't know how to take care of a plant. So yeah, the customer's not always right, but there's very seldom much to be gained from trying to convince them otherwise. <laughs> You may ultimately win an argument where through skilled logic and debate you show them the error of their ways, but they're never going to think more kindly of you for it. And you've probably lost that customer for life. I agree with you. I think the Tinker's a good pick. Thank you. On to our interesting fact. Yep, so we're of course taking to heart the lessons of Master Elodin, and this is a bit of ancient knowledge being rediscovered. I call this one apply poultice directly to skin. So when dealing with bacterial infections, scientists often have to contend with antibiotic resistant strains, which means they sometimes have to look in otherwise unconventional places for ideas. An example of this is a medieval potion called Bald's Eye Salve, which is a potion consisting of garlic, onion, wine, and just a little bit of bovine bile, documented in Bald's Leech Book, which is an early Anglo-Saxon medical textbook from approximately 905 Common Era that was found in the British Library. Okay, so in a way, this kind of reminds me of... I've seen it done twice, and the one that I like the most is actually from Avatar The Last Airbender, where you've got the person who you think is an apothecary... I've probably seen it more than twice... making a potion, and... The well-meaning protagonist is like, could you hurry it up? I need to go give this to my friend who is sick. And then the person that is making this potion looks at you and goes, oh, no, 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 this isn't medicine. This is my cat's dinner. But this is the actual potion, <laughs> as it turns out. So researchers at the School of Life Sciences at the University of Warwick have published a paper in Scientific Reports that documents the potion's efficacy in treating several gnarly bacterial infections. Interestingly, the potion's effects don't come down to a single ingredient, but rather the unique interaction of all of them together, as the researchers found that recipes that omitted one or more of the ingredients did not work. Turns out you need the bovine bile. Well, that's disgusting. Researchers have tested Bald's ISAF and found that it's effective against MRSA, which is a particularly nasty antibiotic-resistant staph infection, Acinetobacter baumani, which is an infection common in war wounds, also against Stenotrophomonas maltophilia, which is an infection commonly linked to lung infections, and Staphylococcus epidermitis, which is a strain associated with infections such as tonsillitis, scarlet fever, cellulitis, and rheumatic fever. And while demonstrating promising antibacterial activity against these bacteria, the tests also crucially showed that no harm occurred to human cells or to mice, meaning that it could be used as an effective treatment at large. And while it's clear that the potion's inventor, Bald, obviously figured something out, we still don't know exactly why it works or how its inventor figured it out. Scientists continue to investigate. It's just one of those further proofs that sometimes these medieval recipes are a little more scientific than we thought, and there is a little more to them. There's a lot of things that we've forgotten. Okay, my theory is it was his cat's lunch, and that he accidentally spilled it down his front, which possibly had some wounds, and it cured it, and he's like, magic potion! But at the same time, I do find it very interesting that something that sounds so at once mundane and on the other hand, kind of like the 
potions that I used to make out of whatever I found under the sink in the bathroom. I mean, the fact that it works, kind of awesome. Yeah, <laughs> it's pretty neat. Do you know how tempted I am to make you say another one because you were so close to having cherries before? Oh, that eye roll is audible. Good thing, because it's a podcast. I won't do that to you. So you are interested. I am interested. That was good. Thank you. Now it's time for seven words. I believe you have the seven words from the book. I do. What do you have? A whole chapter full of orange highlighter. <laughs> That's right, Dennis showed up. <laughs> yeah, but even close interactions with the tinker. Oh my goodness. I mean, okay, I want you to look at this. I said a chapter full of orange highlighter. At this rate, I won't have an orange highlighter to continue on with at the end of the book. We'll have to pick a new color for Wise Man's Fear. Yeah, except I've already run myself through my entire yellow highlighter, my entire pink highlighter. I am currently on my blue highlighter, and we are not done the book yet. Anyway, all of that being said, what are your seven words? Okay, so go easy on me. I know, I know, I know that we at one point had a rule that hyphenated words were not two words. They were one word and they were not two words, but this is too perfect. And I am going to maintain that because Quoth meant to say a compound word that meant twilight, he does not realize that he is incorrectly hyphenating one sock. Okay, with that out of the way, let's hear it. To Ketsalen, are you first knight? Okay, that is pretty endearing. I'll accept it. I mean, I could have chosen so many other things. So many other things. I am wanting a lot of things, Tinker. I'm sorry I didn't properly introduce myself. Artificers have great love for Lodenstone. He thought I knew his little secret. I'm willing to make a deal. A piece of star iron in my hand. How much do you figure it's worth? My stomach clenched at his casual tone. Were you there? Did anything odd happen? My cousin was here for a wedding, and I heard there was some trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's definitely a lot. And then we get to Denna. And Kvothe, I swear to God, it's four different things that he says directly to her before she responded to him at all. And they are, I heard you were in some trouble, so I thought I'd come and help. She says, you're lying, and he says, I am, but it's a pretty lie. I would have come if I'd known. So many. And that's not all of the highlighted bits in this chapter. So I kind of fudged it, because I like that one best. Well, because ultimately the rules are made up and the points don't matter, I'll accept it. Nice reference. I love you. <laughs> all right. And it is my turn to pick the seven words from life. And these come from Avatar The Last Airbender. And these words are, Little warrior, be kind to your sister. Which mirrors a lot of words that we often say to our own Sokka. <laughs> be kind to your sister. 
Our poor, poor older cat. Long-suffering Leela. She was our cat well before we got Sokka. And we got Sokka as a baby kitten. A little 11-week-old kitten. We got a boy. We did all this research thing that girl kitties would do better bringing a boy kitten into their home than another girl cat, an adult boy cat, any of that. Leela hates us for this decision. And she hates Sokka. With a burning passion. And he deserves it. (laughs) He does like to dive bomb her off of the counter quite often. Yeah, his formulation of the golden rule works like this. He sees Leela just minding her own business, and then you see the little target locked on dialogue go through his brain, and then he thinks to himself, self, what would I like to have happen to me in this situation? And then he says to himself, self, I think I should like to be pounced upon. To be fair, Leela consistently forgets the first rule of D&D. Always look up. She's not very good at the situational awareness. She's not used to being pounced upon. It's been nearly two years. She should be aware of this by now. Not saying our Leela is always the quickest on the uptake. She mostly just wants to be left alone and to be able to snuggle. That's about it. Yeah. Fun fact. Most people that we know, their favorite of our cats is Leela. One of my former professors and really good friend who, oh man, I miss her. And really, 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 really want to get done with this whole self-isolation. Bullshirt. She loves Sokka. She absolutely adores that little trouble muffin. And, you know, good for him because he needs at least one person on his side. And with that, thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. It is getting kind of warm in this room. It's a little fluffy. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. Join us next week as we discuss chapter 72 of The Name of the Wind through the lens of riddles. We would like to extend a huge thank you to our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world we've enjoyed exploring. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. And project management and writing, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, we would absolutely love it if you would join us over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod, where you can find access to our show notes, pictures of my guitars for some reason, early access to the podcast, Patreon-only bonus pods, like our upcoming Equinox bonus pod that will be happening in September. Hell, this episode might be coming out in September, so... Sorry for the timely reference (laughs) and other exciting items. And as always, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Sorry, I keep seeing beautiful art from Hellion White.
And I am very, very, very happy. Ah, very nice. Very, very nice Fire Emblem stuff. And if you follow us on Twitter and don't like Fire Emblem, sorry, you're going to see a lot of me liking a lot of it. <laughs>